when folks were describing how amazing this unit was to me, invariably they at they would always say, "It can even do sous vide." I was like, "Oh, that's cool." <laughs> and I, I think he, like I, uh, I, I basically read the operator's manual, um, not mm-hmm. quite cover to cover, but but pretty thoroughly this week. Um, and in the in the introduction, it's like it can even do sous vide. I was like, oh, great. I can't wait to get to the sous vide section of this. And then there's this, no information about it. It's crazy. It. Like, I, uh, the sous vide section is like one paragraph long. And it's like basically just a description, like a definition of sous vide cooking. It's like sous vide cooking is uh, when meat is vacuum sealed and the, right. uh, and, you know, water is circulated around the bag uh, at the, the ideal finishing temperature of the meat. But it didn't like, Everything else in that manual. <laughs> so you're like, like, oh, perfect. Now I just <laughs> like, have to fill the oven with water. <laughs> Welcome to Food Court. I'm Shale McDonald, and I'm here with my co-host Alan Sutterby. Hi, Shale. Hey, Alan. We're two chefs from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We love food, and we love to talk about it. Alan, do you have a joke to lead off with this week? Any new, any new Cora jokes? Uh, there's one. <laughs> there actually is one. There's oh my one. God. Yes. I, we've kind of talked about this show. There's one that she, there's a food joke. She does that. I feel like is, is so good that she needs to do it. Oh, right. Oh yeah. Okay. So you're going to leave me hanging. I get it. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I could take it but, on a future episode. But I did have some kid-related follow-up about Halloween candy. So we had two conversations ago. We talked a lot about Halloween candy. And between then and now, I went trick-or-treating with my kids and oh yeah, totally saw their haul. And I just wanted to give you some quick notes on the modern, okay. the modern um, trick-or-treat, uh, the, the modern pillowcase content. Yeah, let's hear it. So my, my kids are fairly young, they're two and five. And so we, we would just kind of like do a loop around the block, um, closest to us. The neighborhood is such that there are fewer houses giving out candy than there are not giving out candy. Like, like most of the houses don't give out candy just because of where we are in the world. Um, And so what do they do? They just turn their lights off. They turn their lights off. They close their draw the curtains. Yeah. They go into the basement and put tinfoil in the windows and they watch um, TV and I don't know, pres- Alan, I think maybe a lot of the houses thing. in your neighborhood might be grow ops. <laughs> maybe on one side, the next two houses are vacant, like, and have been vacant for a long time because oh, really? speculators or developers have bought it. And then COVID happened and right. Yeah, yeah. Haven't made their move yet, but anyways. Okay. So we hit it roughly about, something like 20 or maybe 30 houses and so the each each kid's sack has like something like 100 pieces of candy maybe maybe not that much but on that order of magnitude like Mm -hmm. you know several dozen pieces of candy i did a quick i didn't like spreadsheet it but more than 80 percent of my daughter's um hall came from my piece 
one of those three mix packs that are sold at the grocery store. So the mm-hmm. either the Maynard's one, which is the Sour Patch Kids, Swedish Berry, Swedish Fish, um, Fuzzy Peach, or the Nestle one, which is Coffee Crisp, Kit Kat, Arrow, and Smarties, or the Mars one, which was Mars, Snickers, Twix, and M&M's. More than 80% by piece are from <laughs> It's pretty sad. Packs. It's kind of, I can't remember if we put it exactly this way in that conversation, but it's kind of like probably the overall quality of candy is better, but like the variety is way, way down, much, much lower. Yeah. Items that we talked about that were completely absent, like did not see a single um, item from candy corn, which I'm sure you're happy about. Uh, You didn't see any candy corn? There was not a single piece of candy corn. Oh there my god, not- Alan, it's finally going away. <laughs> We've done it. We ate them all. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, not a single... Well, you know that candy corn can't actually reproduce on their own. They need humans <laughs> in order to be able to reproduce. So it's not very natural. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, no candy corn, not a single craft caramel, mm-hmm. um, and, and not a single uh, generic Halloween toffee. Huh. Um some interesting items that were in the sack. <laughs> um, there were, uh, we had, I think right at the very end of the discussion, we like quickly mentioned the tobacco themed uh, candies of our youth. Um, yeah. There was one, one package of Popeye candy sticks in, oh my God. in Cora's bag. Yeah. So they're still around. Hmm. Popeye still smells. They still have pipe. like a red tip no, on they, one end? No, they don't have a red tip. Oh, uh, Okay. And I don't even remember clearly now if they explicitly said candy cigarettes on the packaging when I was little. If maybe they were always called candy sticks, or I don't know if it's been yeah, rebranded sure. or what. But anyway, so I thought that was interesting. Like I was surprised that they're still allowed to sell those. Um, one one thing in her bag that I would have put on my disappointments list that I totally forgot existed um, <laughs> were dots. Do you know dots? I don't know. They're a soft gummy. They're like a uh, like a jujube, um, but just like a generic. Oh, okay. Like they're just round dots, multicolored. Yeah. I don't know if they're all flavored differently or not. But I saw a dots package and was like, oh, dots. Yeah, I definitely didn't like the dots. Um, <laughs> and the only other, the only other thing that really interested me about her uh, load was um, she had she got a couple packs of Ritz snack witches. Oh really? Yeah, like the little like sandwich peanut butter um, or cheese ones. She got the cheese ones. ones. Okay. Yeah, which I actually like. I, I mean, I, I really liked them as a kid, and I ate. Yeah, hers. but it's sort of a school lunch snack, right? Yeah, exactly. It was just kind of like in the vein <laughs> that we were talking about things like chips and pop, where it's like, yeah, I like chips and pop, but it's not really Halloween candy in a lot of kids' eyes. Um, it's funny because I was at my brother's place he has like a bonfire like there's a sort of a new halloween tradition where they have a bonfire on their um front driveway um so that kids don't have to walk up to the house and then they hand out candy with a ladle right yep (laughs) um but they they had like a big bucket of candy that they were giving candy to kids from but then they also had like a big box of chips Mm-hmm. And they would ask kids if they wanted chips. And some of the kids were like, yeah, like they really wanted the <laughs> chips more than the candy. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe it depends on the kid. But Fair enough. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Oh, I hope we didn't come off too strong on that front. I just 
to me it was like yeah i like chips i'll eat them yeah but it wasn't something that i got like jacked about excited to have in your halloween well yeah and, and it takes up a lot of room so yeah my brother ryan mcdonald co-author of the uh food court say, podcast I, theme song i know that name yeah <laughs> the famous famous ryan mcdonald um he sent me a picture of a bunch of wax lips that he got at a candy store um and he said he was going to give me some but i haven't seen them yet <laughs> i haven't seen them yet like so. he purchased them this halloween yeah and he purchased them after having heard our episode so oh. i think he bought he saw them so, in the candy store and bought them on purpose because just to spite you kind of or <laughs> just as a joke yeah yeah just troll me i guess good candy follow-up i have one other piece of follow-up um mm-hmm. and i kind of uh i kind of already followed up about this a little bit um because i put it in our show notes but yeah the keg still does have escargot on their menu is that right okay good yeah yeah, yeah you bet so if you want some garlic escargot and and mm-hmm. uh some toasty french bread just head on over to the keg They'll take Maybe they should you. sponsor us. Oh, that was practically an ad read. I was. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get a chance to to do any research on how the feasibility of raising snails, but I'll get yeah. back to you. Yeah, I did ask my mom if I was right about somebody raising snails on Gambier Island, and she didn't exactly remember, but she's <laughs> she had a hazy recollection about that. Yeah. So surely, if the keg has snails, then like. Cisco carries snails. Like you just get snails from Gordon's or Cisco or whatever, right? Like they're not that yeah, hard in a can. To, yeah. No, they're not that hard to get. I mean, you, if you want snail, if you want to make snails, you can just go get them at the grocery store in a can. At Safeway. Yeah, legit. At Superstore, <clears throat> I I haven't actually purchased them at Safeway, but I'm pretty sure I purchased some at Superstore like not that long ago. Like maybe last year, I think maybe we had escargot like as part of an appetizer for our Christmas dinner or something like that. Really? And uh, I bought them at Superstore. Okay. <laughs> Use offer code food court to get 10% off snails. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like eating snails? <laughs> do you like listening man some to... of my greatest memories are of eating snails <laughs> <laughs> okay sorry i'll let it go it's gonna happen for us <laughs> yeah probably at some point <laughs> um yeah so i think that's all the follow-up yeah and that's all uh do we have a topic tonight alan yeah we do you came to eat at um the place that i work twice right at Ernest's. yeah, yeah Ernest's that's right di- twice in one week Ernest's dining room um two months ago we had an episode where i uh shared the draft of the menu that we were going to cook at Ernest this fall um it wasn't fully fleshed out but we talked about it and you got to taste almost everything on the menu over the last week totally um, and so we thought it'd be a fun idea to do an entire, an entire episode on follow-up, um, <laughs> yeah, where- for, forget the candy follow-up, <laughs> this entire episode is yeah. all follow-up. Um, yeah. but, uh, on, on the one hand, like just for you to talk about your, uh, your experience and the dishes and what you thought of them, and also maybe an opportunity to, to see how far some of those dishes ended up straying from their initial concept. Um, like as you, yeah cook them and realize what works and what doesn't and totally and that kind of thing so that's what we're gonna do it's a earnest fall menu 
revisited. Yeah. And uh, I basically, while I was eating, um, so I went twice um, in the same week. I, I meant to go a couple weeks ago and and um, so that uh, we could maybe record this episode a little bit earlier. The timing didn't really work out. And, and I had already um, made a reservation for my entire family to go. And so it just turned out that the night that I went on my own and where Alan um, very generously basically made a tasting menu out of their a la carte menu so that I could try as many things as possible. Um, the night that I did that was actually wound up being like two nights before I was going uh, with my family to celebrate my mom and my brother's birthdays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ate there like, yeah, twice in two days. So I got to know the staff pretty well. That was pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just a couple like notes before we get into talking about the food. Ernest is a pretty nice dining room. It's like maybe a little bit like 2000s style. Yes. Um, like some parts of it could probably in the next five years use a bit of a facelift. Uh, they have like really nice wine cases in the middle of the floor. And um, yeah, it's like a pretty nice, big open dining room, lots of space. Um, I mean, I don't know, maybe during non-COVID times, the tables are packed more closely. Is that, do you know anything about that? Yeah, I don't know about it at this moment, but yeah, certainly over the past year, they, yeah, the dining room was reworked to accommodate distancing. There's, right. There's been different rules at different times, and I don't know exactly how they've laid it out right now, but. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty nice in the dining room. The experience of getting into the restaurant is a little weird, gotta say. <laughs> right. Because you have to go to a post secondary campus and. Well, Find you know, it. like, <laughs> I mean, I think like the the biggest, well, the, there's like a big awning uh, outside, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's like right on, it, it's like on the outside uh, wall or of the, um, it's on one end of the school campus, um, you know, like right across the street from a parking lot. So like, you know, normal restaurant setup. And when you pull up, um, to the address, you can see the awning that says Ernest. It's like very obvious that it's a restaurant. Mm. And then, but then when you walk in under that awning, yeah, you're you're like walking into a school building. It's like the weirdest feeling. Like, yeah, yeah. It, you know, like <laughs> normally you would be like opening a door and you know like walking into a restaurant, but instead instead you're walking into a school. It's just yes. like a really weird feeling. And then like it's not strictly obvious like where the actual entrance is like mm. you kind of have to keep your eye out op- open for it a little bit um, so that was kind of interesting yeah i'm ready i'm writing this down i'm writing this <laughs> okay cool <laughs> suggestions for the program chair or something mm. <laughs> i mean i think that if i were in their shoes and if they like they must use some of the money that Ernest generates to put back into like redecorating the dining room when it needs refurbishing and, you know, buying new furniture for the dining room and things like that. I mm-hmm. think like if, if I was in charge of operating the restaurant as a long-term goal, I would try, I would have it on my like to-do list to try and put an actual outside door on the restaurant that doesn't, um, that you don't have to enter by going through the school. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
Yep. It's not a big thing, but like in terms of making it feel like a real restaurant experience for the guests, mm-hmm. um, you know, like that just sort of like popped me out of it for a second. Yeah. Oh, I get it. Yeah. And then the second thing uh, that I thought was kind of interesting that I've never really seen before. Um, and I don't know, maybe there's a reason for this and maybe you can explain it to me. Um, but when I sat down, the it was like white tablecloths, um, and, but there was nothing on the table aside from a wine list and a candle. And, uh, when I sat down, um, the servers, well, like the, the, the serving staff comes over and introduces themselves and it's, you wind up being served by a group because it's a, you know, it's a a school for the servers as well. They're in the hospitality program, I I guess. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. What that program's called. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, there, there's like a head server and I think they're like a paid employee and they come over and introduce themselves and then they introduce the student servers who are also going to be helping them out. And the student servers all kind of like have their own little jobs. Like one of them is going to take your order and one of them is going to like bring your food to the table and one of them is going to take your drink order or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all went pretty well. It was pretty smooth. Um, some of the, some of the student servers were felt like more comfortable in their roles than other ones did, but, mm-hmm. but overall the service was pretty smooth. Like nobody forgot anything that I ordered or anything like that. Everything like that was pretty smooth. Um, but the cutlery situation is very interesting. Tell me about it. So they bring you a cutlery roll. So your cutlery is wrapped in a napkin, which for a fine dining restaurant is a little, I think like. It's a little self-serve for a fine dining restaurant. Right, yep. Um, Normally, in every fine dining restaurant that I've worked at, the cutlery situation is usually there is some cutlery preset on the table before you sit down. Mm -hmm. And that's usually the cutlery for your first course. Right, yeah. In a lot of cases, and that's all. Um, But at Ernest's, they bring you a napkin that's like a cutlery roll, so... um, you know, like in a lot of restaurants, you get like a, a cloth napkin or a paper paper napkin that has your cutlery wrapped inside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but at Ernest, they bring you the entire set of cutlery for your whole meal. So the they they put down a napkin cutlery roll on the table, and I opened it up, and there were seven pieces of cutlery <laughs> in there. Oh, really? And <laughs> yeah, and if like that was fine for me because I know what all that cutlery is for and I know where it goes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but for anyone that like doesn't necessarily dine out all the time or hasn't taken an etiquette class or <laughs> doesn't, hasn't worked in the industry for 15 years, they would open that cutlery roll and be like, what do I do with all of this cutlery? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, to me it was quite obvious. There was like a salad fork and like a, a small spoon that I assumed was going to be um, for like a palate cleanser at some point mm-hmm. um, and a main course fork and a like a steak knife and a regular knife and did I just list seven? I don't think so. <laughs> I think there was more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anyways, I unrolled it all and set it how I would set the table if I was going to set out the entire cutlery for all the entire meal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I put the salad fork on the outside and I put the spoon up above like where my plate was and right. Yeah. But it was like, it, you know, if I, if I didn't know where all that cutlery went, I would have been very confused. <laughs> so Just I thought that was kind of put it in the water funny. glass, put it all in the water glass. <laughs> 
yeah, exactly. Like, or I, you know, probably it, if I didn't know where all the cutlery went, I probably would have taken out one fork and one knife and thrown all the rest of the cutlery <laughs> under my chair or something. I don't right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that was pretty interesting. And, and then like, um, they didn't really, during the service, they didn't really strike my cutlery like from the table either. Um, when we ate, together with my whole family, like when we had a table of nine people, they definitely cleared the cutlery from previous courses mm -hmm. after each course. Uh, when I was eating your tasting menu, I don't know, maybe the cues weren't there necessarily for them to know when to take away like my salad fork or something because right, yeah. the service was different. Yeah. Um, and, and so maybe that's why they didn't. Um, but, but yeah, they never took any of the cutlery away um, unless I like took it and put it on a plate and asked them to... I see. Yeah. To take it away or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah. There was also a butter knife. I forgot there's a butter oh, knife in yeah. there as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So the cutlery situation was pretty funny and I like the paper menus were also just like printed, like, like laser jet printer, which I mean, like, you know, whatever it's a, it's like a, a learning restaurant. It's a school restaurant mm. and probably changes being made to the menu fairly often and stuff like that. And menus are expensive and I totally understand like it's, it's fine. And the, but the wine list was like on nice cards in like a, a nice like menu fold. Um, but the, but the regular a la carte menu was just like on a printed piece of paper. Right. I see that. Those are my overall observations for the mm -hmm. actual presentation <laughs> of the dinner service. Mm. Um, and then uh, they came, they took my order. That was all great. And then um, they brought out an amuse-bouche. Yeah. So that was fun. I wasn't expecting that. It was like a nice little surprise at the beginning of my <gasps> meal. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that you were saying that a student designed that amuse? Yeah. So every, every night of service, we'll do an amuse-bouche. And um, the, the vast majority of the time, it is a student it's a student project basically like it's something that the student right comes up with and they make it and present it and we serve it and they're assessed on it um so, so sometimes we have more service days than we do students or if there's a special event maybe I'll, like i'll design it but typically it's a student um so yeah you you ate a student's uh a project that night cool um yeah and it was a uh, lobster ceviche uh, served on, it was like kind of a little canapé and the base was an arancini mm -hmm. and, um, and it was topped with, uh, lobster ceviche and it had a little bit of some kind of sauce underneath the arancini. Yeah. It was a mango and habanero sauce. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, yeah, it was good. The arancini was really good. It was like hot and it was soft inside and it was crispy on the outside. Like I thought the arancini was really well done. Um, the ceviche I thought was like great acidity level could have used maybe a touch of salt or something. Mm -hmm. I like, there was like black sesame seeds in the ceviche. Mm -hmm. That was really nice. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely could, I don't know, like I definitely could have done with more of the sauce. Oh, is that um, right? Yeah felt like there wasn't really enough on the plate for me to actually like because the arancini was like fairly large i wasn't going to eat the whole thing in one bite mm -hmm. um but i felt like there was maybe one bite worth of sauce on the plate mm -hmm. uh, but yeah it was good and then any more comments about that no i thought that was i thought that was um a particularly um like contemporary and somewhat uh inventive amuse-bouche like it was I, almost ambitious i would say right 
the kinds of flavors like risotto and lobster and mango and habanero, like it sounds mm-hmm. like it, it has the potential to be kind of like a cluttered concept and like maybe too many right. things going on. But I, I was, I was quite impressed with that. The execution of that student project. I was, I was happy to serve it to you. That's for sure. Yeah, it was tasty. Um, and then next I had the beet salad. Mm-hmm. And so there was a beet salad, right? When you initially proposed the menu, right? Yes. And this is one of and the, I think it was pretty similar to what wound up being on the plate. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the handful of dishes that basically did not change, uh, certainly in terms of the components from what we had discussed before I had done any cooking to till now. The only, the only difference actually is that, um, the goat cheese components, I was just mm-hmm. picturing originally crumbling it, like just crumbling goat cheese onto the salad. Uh, we've right. been doing it as a, as a goat cheese mousse, like that's coming out of a siphon. Um, yeah. just because it, it was a little bit, it was kind of a detail, but like, it was a little bit hard to kind of get the crumbled goat cheese up onto a fork with the beet and endive and stuff and having it as mm-hmm. a mousse, that made it a little bit easier to eat and and kind of mix with the other ingredients. So that's the only thing that changed. Totally. Yeah. And I really liked that. Uh, The goat cheese mousse was like a really good component of the dish. Normally when I see like uh, airy sauce like that, or like, you know, something that's been kind of like transformed into like a foam or something like that. um, I'm usually a little concerned that like, you know, it's not going to have the flavor of the thing that it's supposed to represent. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that wasn't the case here. Like, uh, it really, it really had like a lot of goat cheese flavor. It was really tasty and Mm -hmm. the texture of it was really nice. Thought it was good. Um, the beets themselves are like, uh, roasted and then cut into rounds. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They were good. Uh, could have used like, I think more even seasoning. Some of the beets that I had were like really good and were seasoned well enough. And some of them weren't really. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I don't know, either more even seasoning or one thing that I was thinking while I was eating it is that like you could kind of like pump up the beet flavor a little bit if you did like if you took if you made like if you tossed the beets maybe in like a beet reduction or something like that before Mm -hmm. you put them on the plate Mm -hmm. um, just to sort of like pop that beet flavor a little bit. Yeah, we could like the like we had talked about in the first conversation. the, the vinaigrette is made with the beet, like the liquid that the beets are cooked mm-hmm. in. Um, but yeah, reducing that would probably help in that regard. Yeah. Right. Or you could still have that vinaigrette on the plate, but like, you know, just have like a reduced jus and then like maybe rewarm the beets in it or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, like... <laughs> I remember when we talked about it originally, I was kind of like, hmm, hazelnuts maybe seem like a little out of place or something. And like, do they really grow here? And you were like, yeah, no, they do grow here. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, And the hazelnuts on the dish tasted really good, but like kind of like what you were saying about with the goat cheese. um, Hard to get into your mouth. I felt like, yeah, kind of. Mm -hmm. They were hard to sort of like eat with the beets. Like I felt like I was like, having to take a bite of beet and then take a bite of hazelnut. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I don't necessarily know what the solution is for that. I was kind of thinking that it would, it, it would be neat if you like made the hazelnuts into like a little 
tweel or something and right. it was like the same shape as the beat and then you put it as a little like hazelnut tweel on top of the beat and mm-hmm. then when you had to cut into the beat you had to cut through the hazelnut tweel and you would get a piece of both or something like right. that but yeah. i mean obviously that's complicated way more complicated than, than toasting hazelnuts and <laughs> yeah. breaking them up and putting them on a plate yeah so. that okay so the <laughs> We're going to spend an hour just on the beat salad. Um, the, oh <laughs> so yeah, the mechanics of eat, like I, I really, I, I really love the flavors of that dish. Um, but yeah, the mechanics of eating it were surprisingly frustrating mm-hmm. in the first iteration. So we came up with the mousse and we, and we try and like, we put the crushed hazelnuts on the mousse so that it they kind of stick right. to it but there's still loose bits uh, on the bottom of the plate one one mm-hmm. of the earlier ideas i had was like well what if you like kind of you roll a goat cheese cylinder and it's encrusted in the hazelnut so the hazelnuts are like fused to the goat cheese right the goat cheese is rolled into a cylinder and then cut into rounds um and so that was another idea to solve the yeah the the knife and fork mechanics of that dish right but I mean, I like the idea of the twill. You're right; it does it it adds a certain amount of complexity to the um, mise en place. But mm-hmm. I'll think about it. Yeah, I was also really happy because there's pear and endive on the dish as well, mm-hmm. as well. And I thought they really did a lot to add some fresh sweetness to the dish. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it was good. Cool. It was a nice salad. Thanks. Next course was chilled lobster. So this one changed quite a lot. We didn't even talk about lobster when we no did our original discussion yeah this is one one of i think one of only two dishes that did a complete about face we had in the first conversation i had an idea for a spot prawn dish um and we talked a lot about the um the problems with sourcing i forgot Mm -hmm. when we were having that conversation like we were wondering if there was even good frozen spot prawns available i've definitely had them now that i've had time to think about them um right from skipper auto which is uh, a community supported fishery that Lisa and I buy seafood from. Um, okay. We've had amazing BC spot prawns frozen from them. Um, but yeah, the, the reality was for it, at Ernest, we just could not procure, we could get spot prawns, but they were not, uh, they were not uh, at the quality that we needed. Right. So I immediately um, kibosh spot prawns plugged in tiger prawns in the same dish concept, but then eventually just took it in a different direction, something that made more sense for the learning outcomes and for what we had available to us. So the dish that was spot prawn, buttermilk, rye, and dill in our first conversation is now Mm -hmm. lobster, um, like chilled poached lobster tail, uh, buttermilk, pickled fennel, cucumber, and apple. Right. Yeah. The so the buttermilk, I'm not exactly sure what you did to get the texture of it, but the b- buttermilk was delicious and I really love the texture of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the chilled lobster, the piece that I had, um, was maybe a little chewy. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a hard thing to regulate. Um, and you know, like I only had one, like a half of a tail. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like when you're when you're serving it normally, it's probably a whole tail cut in half, right? And so when you cut into it, you can kind of like tell what the texture of it is. Mm-hmm. Um, mine was a little chewy, okay, um, but it tasted good. Um, good lobster flavor. I like the potato chips, but 
you know, seemingly like kind of simple. Oh, do I took pictures of everything, but I don't think I have. I think maybe I just like saw the lobster tail and I was just like, yes, <laughs> I just downed it before I took a picture because I don't think I have a picture of it. Um, love the pickled fennel and the fennel fronds, like fennel fronds, like you know, nice and fresh. Um, the apple. I found a little hard to eat because it was like kind of flat on the plate. Um, okay. And I, I mean, like, you know, it's not like I'm definitely splitting hairs here. Like, it's not like hard to eat in a way like this was impossible to get off the plate. Like, you know, you cut the apple, you can get it on your fork and kind of lift it off the plate with your knife. It's not like a big deal or right. something. Yeah. But I think that I probably would have done something a little bit different with the presentation of the apple, mm-hmm. like thinner slices and rolled them or. Right. Yeah. I, I don't I don't exactly know like I don't know Parisians maybe or mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. and then I think was the cucumber compressed no no okay yeah cucumber seemed a little plain to me mm-hmm. um but yeah I don't know maybe it was a seasoning thing or something okay is it normally supposed to be seasoned in a specific way or like the one you ate it had a touch of salt and a touch of there's like a a lime dressing like a lime vinaigrette that we use as like okay. just a little touch of acidity on a bunch of things um so it would have had a touch of that but that's it okay um yeah also i i feel like my piece of lobster was maybe a little under seasoned as well mm-hmm. it was like that was sort of a bit of a through line mm-hmm. for my meal like a lot of components were seasoned like beautifully and perfectly and then some components on on like a fair few of the ditch, dishes seemed like they didn't quite get seasoned the way that they were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but yeah, it looks really nice. Like it's a pretty nice, modern, fancy looking presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that dish. So the lobster, like it, um, we get tails like in the shell um, and we blanch them for a minute and shock them and peel them and then cook them sous vide. Um, okay. And so I'm wondering like for the, the slight toughness of the lobster, like it, I don't know what else to do with that process to improve mm-hmm. it. The only, the only possible thing, like, I mean, you were, you actually were served a third of a lobster t- because we were, I was, I knew okay. you were going to run out of room in your tummy basically. And so we're like really mm-hmm. trying to like get everything small enough. And so like you had the outer third of a tail, but still like, if it's, I was getting the outside of the tail instead of like the actual inner tail meat. Yeah. You know? But still like if it's only blanched for 60 seconds and then is cooked sous vide, you would think that, that shouldn't make such a big difference in Right. It's so tricky. I don't like I haven't really worked with lobster tail enough that I've had like time to like like fully perfect how to make the tail not wind up being chewy. Mm-hmm. I cooked a bunch of lobsters for a for a family get together right. um, for my parents' anniversary this summer. Yeah. And yeah, that was like, well, I wound up grilling them, not sous vide them, but that that was like basically the process that I used. So I blanched them for like a minute and then, uh, and when I blanched them, I put uh, like skewers in the tails so that they wouldn't curl up. Mm-hmm. And then I took them out of the blanching pot and cooled them down as quickly as possible. And then I cut them all in half and then grilled them just like briefly Mm -hmm. Um, and some of them were like really tender and delicious and some of them were kind of chewy and tough and I'm not 
quite sure like what the difference is or what happened but yeah mm -hmm. it's tricky it's a tricky problem mm -hmm. um and i think that yeah if you're blanching them to get them out of the shells and then sous videing them i think like that's your best bet to try and get like a consistent result mm -hmm. um but yeah i don't know yeah it could yeah. be the i don't know how fast you're bringing up bringing them up to temperature in the sous vide or the sous vide temperature it's yeah it's hard to know next dish corn bisque that one must have been tricky to give me a small portion of and have it still be like the original dish because there's like the soup and then there's like a little corn puree surprise at the bottom hey? <laughs> yeah yeah there's like basically yeah basically cream corn used like it, it has a functional i mean it's tasty but it, like it's um it's there to anchor the crab cake and to anchor the, there's like a little blanched cherry tomato right. and it helps the cherry tomato stand up and poke its head above the surface of the bisque so <laughs> but yes it was like a yeah that was cute it was a that was a such a cute little soup presentation. The corn bisque like had such a intense saffron flavor. Yeah, too much. Uh, I mean, like it wasn't too much for me. I really enjoyed it. It was like it made it it like really brought like it really brought the flavor memory of having like a lobster bisque like mm -hmm. to like into my head like right away as soon as I tasted it. I was like whoa like why does this taste so much like lobster bisque and i was like oh it's right. not the lobster it's the saffron <laughs> and like yeah for me it, it like i don't know it was a good level it was it was a lot but it was a good level because it really like reinforced that sensation mm -hmm. um yeah for some people who maybe haven't had a lot of saffron or who don't have a flavor flavor memory to connect that to it might be a, a bit much because it's like you know, it's such a unique flavor and yeah. for people who haven't had it a ton, it, they, it might be a little bit disorienting maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Have you gotten any feedback about it or? Well, I had one, I did have one comment this week that it was, a, that it was a bit strong. And so I was, yeah, I've been wondering about tweaking that recipe and taming it a little bit. Um, right. The idea, like <laughs> there's a, a note, I can't remember if it's with regards to foie gras or truffles or all luxury ingredients, but in the French laundry, Keller says like he intentionally like serves you a little bit more than he probably should just so that you get the idea of what it's all about. <laughs> because like, yeah, a lot of people, you know, if they go to the French laundry, that's one of the few times in their life that they're going to have foie gras. Oh, sorry, not the French laundry because you can't serve foie gras in California, but at per se, um, right. anyways. And so I, I wanted to make sure the flavor was like loud and clear, but yeah, maybe it can be toned back a bit. I don't know. I don't know. That's uh, honestly what you just described about like giving somebody a little bit extra of the experience that they haven't really had before. Mm -hmm. That rings totally true for how much the dish was flavored in the way that it was flavored. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I suppose that you kind of run the risk of, of like if you serve it to someone who doesn't, necessarily like saffron right. then yeah it's probably going to be overpowering and they're probably going to be like uh yeah but but like yeah for me that's sort of exactly what it did it was like boom saffron like you want to know what saffron tastes like here's what it tastes right. like shale <laughs> like yeah it, it, it was really good in that way um and it was nice to have like the little corn surprise in the bottom right uh the crab cake i felt was maybe like a little dense or something mm -hmm. or like or maybe or something or Potentially, yeah. 
and like maybe just could have benefited from like a little bit of like i mean i know there are a lot of herbs in it but like maybe i don't know just having a bit more freshness about it mm-hmm. or something i think it could have benefited from having a little bit more freshness so i don't know maybe citrus or- potentially like some yeah maybe citrus or something like that mm-hmm. Is there citrus in it? There is lime zest and juice in the cake, but oh, it's probably yeah. hard for that to just, come through when it's like basically soaked in the in the soup. But right, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was nice. That was nice, and it was also a cute dish, cute presentation. Like, yeah, <laughs> the color of the soup is beautiful too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like it. Uh, next up, pork belly. So this was a disc. This was a this was a dish that was pretty close to what you talked about on the show right yeah it was the only dish on the menu that i had actually made before writing this menu like we had it on the menu last term and so i put it back on um and so yeah i don't i don't think anything has changed about it over the last 10 months i got you um are the chicharron that's on that dish are you guys making it Mm in-house yeah so we'll get pork belly skin right yeah and how are you storing it the (laughs) um it's stored in a Cambro at room temperature um, okay. and they're tasted periodically and I can, and, and then um, if required, they'll go back into a dehydrator. The, the right, ones okay. that we served this week, I, I tasted and they were a touch on the spongy side instead of the brittle crispy side. And yeah. So they the, were slightly spongy. Yeah. yeah so it, they did go back in the dehydrator. Um, but maybe, I wonder if our patisserie lab has uh, silica gel packs or something that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like if you store them in a container and put silica gel in there, mm-hmm. that would definitely help. Or like, um, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how your access to equipment is, but like in some places that I've worked, we actually stored things like that in the dehydrator. Oh, and I see. Just yeah. yeah. Leave the dehydrator running during service, like at a low low fan low temp and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it just like yeah helps keep them dry yeah um the pork belly uh was beautifully crispy and still nice and fatty and chewy on the inside like crispy on the outside that was like beautifully cooked i really love the cornbread the um yeah i don't know i really like this dish uh the jicama slaw i mean yeah it's not like it's not all that out there, you know, like the dish is like, you know, it's pretty all fairly like classic, except, well, I don't know. Maybe I haven't really seen the cornbread in that situation all that much. Mm. Um, oh yeah. And the cornbread was like so good and it's soaked in like honey, like a spicy honey sauce or something. Is that right? Yeah. Like the corn, the cornbread itself is pretty typical, but it's it's fried in the pan with the the like once the belly is rendered a bit it's the cornbread mm-hmm. is fried in the pork fat um and then when the belly is put on the cornbread it's kind of uh napped with um a mixture of honey and with fermented chili yeah. okay yeah yeah and i love the honey and fermented chili um the sweetness was great i thought it was like surprisingly spicy do you ever get comments uh, like I, I feel like for some of the diners that you have there who might be a little bit older i feel like for me it was like surprisingly spicy mm-hmm. um which i really enjoyed but i think you know maybe for some diners it might be you know for some edmontonian diners it might be like a little spicier than little intense, what they want yeah yeah. No, we haven't had any comments. I think because it's laid pretty bare on the menu, 
that menu that it's people spicy, yeah. expect it or like are are it can can brace for it. Although I would say that like it's a it's been a little bit difficult to dial in the consi- the consistency of the heat of that sauce because right um like when i first made the recipe for it i was working with whatever like literally whatever random chilies my mother-in-law was growing that summer mm-hmm. and so it came out all over the place and so like the one that you had or i'm trying to like dial it into a, a like the to to use the the more standardized peppers that we procure at work and so i think that one was right. the pepper mix itself was half serrano and half just plain sweet bell pepper mm-hmm. um and so like if we i i ate that dish this weekend was i didn't think it was um too much but i i also was surprised at the kick that it had with the way that we portioned the sauce yeah um so i wonder if next we would try one third two thirds serrano sweet pepper or something like that Right. Well, it's, I mean, like, that's tough too, because like, um, oftentimes like, you know, like the spiciness can really vary from like one jalapeno to the next or one serrano to the next or from one batch that you purchase to the next. Definitely Um, with jalapeno. I thought, I thought serrano was more reliable. Like serrano is, I believe a lot hotter than jalapeno. I thought serranos were more reliable. Um, but yeah, definitely jalapenos. Like I think that some of them have literally had the heat bred out of them so that they're more marketable right. to North Americans. Like, but yeah. Um, yeah, that's something that's something <laughs> what I've done in those situations. Like, um, we had a spicy ice cream on the menu. Oh, was there a while? Yeah. Yeah. And so what we did to try and dial in the spiciness was make like large batches of a spicy, syrup and then each time we made a new batch we would do a side-by-side tasting of the syrup Mm -hmm. so that we could compare like the spiciness Mm -hmm. directly and then use the syrup the spicy syrup as a component to provide the amount of spice that we needed so we're not like adding the peppers directly to like, we're not putting a specific number of peppers in the ice cream. We're making a syrup that we can then use to flavor the ice cream. Mm -hmm. And we're, and we're like regulating the, the spiciness of that syrup by um, like doing a side by side tasting and either adding like more syrup component or adding more, chili component right. to either make it spicier or less spicy mm-hmm. so that we wind up with the next batch being as close as possible in spiciness to the previous batch mm-hmm. um but yeah it's it's a hard thing to get right yeah i mean it's it's like when you're not doing giant batches of things and you're just like making you know like you're putting peppers on a burger or something like right. that it doesn't really matter as much and people understand that they might get a pepper that's really hot and like that's fine or whatever but mm-hmm. when you're trying to like make something consistently spicy and you have to make like 800 liters of it it's a pretty tricky problem to solve yes <laughs> um next up pierogies yeah so alan You've talked to me a lot about how you want to revolutionize the pierogi <laughs> game in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like this uh, pierogi dish? Like, do you feel like, um, you know, you got pretty close to what what your um, what's in your mind's eye in terms of philosophically how you want to elevate the pierogi <laughs> or what? Um, the the pierogi itself is uh, 
it's it's in the right direction. So like we talked about the um, making a, a, th- a very thin and delicate dough mm-hmm. and um, trying to shape them and present them with the care that's paid to uh, ravioli and other filled pastas at places like Corso and Barbrico. Mm-hmm. So I think I took a big step in that direction. I think there's still especially with the presentation and maybe with the filling, I think there's still some, there's still some ways to make it more awesome. Right. But I like that dish. I like those pierogies. Yeah, me too. Um, yeah. And I think you're right. Like they, you know, the dough is very delicate and they're, um, you know, a lot closer in their like shape and consistency to like a delicate stuffed pasta or something like that. Mm. Um, I agree that the filling could probably use some work either like either in terms of trying to get a little bit more in mm-hmm. just like tricky in a small pierogi like that um, or just trying to bump the flavor of it a little bit. I felt like the, the sauce on the dish. So the sauce is like a, a, um, a mushroom and leek puree, basically mm-hmm. what kind of mushrooms it was oyster mushrooms, oyster mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the sauce is like so intensely delicious and filled with umami and flavorful. Like the sauce is like just like a flavor bomb. Mm-hmm. The filling of the pierogi, you know, doesn't really stand up to it. I feel like, mm-hmm. um, and like, <laughs> but it, but it's funny because like anytime that you put sour cream and dill on a dish that has like a pierogi dough in it, like th- you're done. You've made pierogies. That's <laughs> going to taste like, yeah. it's going to taste like 90% of the pierogies that you've ever had in your life. Right. Um, and the, you know, like the, that part of it, like having the sour cream and the dill really like, you know, brought the like pierogi kind of like flavor memory, sense memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it definitely ate like pierogies, but I didn't really get much out of the filling. I felt like, right. On their own, like the the flavor, the flavor of the grizzly gouda is supposed to be the star of the filling, and I do think it comes right. through. But um, the yeah, two things about the filling: one, it, when you when you say um, like that, maybe there should be more of it. One interesting thing, and I assume this is a difference in the the dough itself, but like when we, or maybe it's the thinness of the dough, but when we shape the pierogies, they look nice and plump and full plump. But, oh, yeah. but then after they get cooked they look a little bit deflated um which is not the case right. for like for a good like annulati or ravioli um like they still right. tend to like look like they're about to burst uh the really well-made ones and so that's something i would love to <laughs> improve about it um and like i said i don't know if it's the dough itself like it's obviously not the same as a pasta dough much lower egg content i wonder if like you so there's grizzly gouda in the filling Mm -hmm. okay yeah because there was also grizzly gouda like on the dish like some sort of like shards of grizzly gouda and so maybe that was part of it too like i couldn't necessarily tell where the grizzly gouda flavor was coming from if it was coming from the uh little pieces that were there as garnish or if it was coming from the filling Mm -hmm. but when you're putting it in the filling like you're grating it and putting it in the filling raw right Mm mm-hmm then i wonder if potentially like when you heat up the pierogi if the cheese inside is melting if it's like you know like it loses some of its integrity so it just like you know then the dough has the 
and the ability to sort of like collapse because the cheese gets really soft inside mm. or something. I don't know. I don't know. Like, yeah. I mean, the volume doesn't change, so you wouldn't think that right, it would, yeah. you know, but, but maybe like when you wrap them, the fact that the cheese is still hard and raw is like giving it enough structure that it's kind of like holding the dough up. Mm-hmm. And then once it melts, once you cook the pierogies, if it kind, it kind of, of like. Sloughs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, and I don't necessarily we'll, know if there's a way around that, but yeah, like unless it's making, <laughs> like making um, instead of incorporating the cheese just as grating raw cheese into the cooked potato mix, you like treat it almost like a croquette filling, and you make a bechamel right. and like a really intensely cheesy, grizzly gouda y bechamel and fold it into potatoes, or or maybe if you just like yeah, make like croquette, like if you ha- put the cheese into hot potatoes and so it's already like you know melted into the potatoes Mm -hmm. before you cook it or whatever Mm -hmm. if i don't know if it would make a difference but yeah i don't know Mm -hmm. it it would probably be something that i would try Mm -hmm. um and then my last comment about it is that like one of the things that i really love about pierogies and that i i don't know like uh maybe this is just me i'm not really sure but like one thing about pierogies to me that is like um it's like one of my favorite things is that like the dough is delicate and oftentimes um, like winds up being quite soft and supple and has like a very smooth, supple texture, like similar to like pasta or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the pierogies being fried on both sides, like I find that you lose some of that kind of like suppleness, like, you know, to, to fry it and to get it like, get some like color on it you're kind of like crisping it and that part of that crisping process is dehydrating it Mm -hmm. you know like you're cooking the water out of it and then the surface starts to bubble and get in the oil and that's how it that's how it starts to brown right Mm -hmm. um and so like it, it made it like like they're so nice and delicate um but then by frying them i feel like you take away a little bit of that delicacy delicateness Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and so i when i was eating it i was kind of thinking to myself like it would be nice maybe if only one side of the pierogi was fried okay or something like that so like the you know one side still has like the really supple soft like doughy texture and then the other side has like that crispy kind of you know the the alternate texture right yeah whatever Hmm. okay I don't know if that's a thing. And then you would probably put the soft side down in the sauce, yeah. Into the sauce yeah. so that it, the sauce doesn't mess up the crispiness of the crispy side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a thing I thought of. We'll try it. Yeah, give it a shot. See how it goes. You can call me back to re-adjudicate them. <laughs> You're never going to want me to come back to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So follow up on our follow up. Alan will never let me eat at his restaurant again. <laughs> is that is that all the appetizers? That was it. Wow. And uh, yeah, that was all the apps. And then I got a palate cleanser. Oh yeah. What was the flavor? That's an excellent question, Alan. Rosé. No, we had rosé when I ate there with my family. Okay. What was it? Calamansi. Didn't write it down. Uh huh. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah. Was it? 
The only, I like Palmancy? I like I don't. That's not even. Oh, you don't make not them. even from right. my kitchen. But I do like I right. if I walk by the the big whiteboard, I look at what they're serving that night. And those are the two I remember seeing yeah. last week: rose and uh, and calamansi lime. Yeah, the calamansi. Yeah, it was good. It definitely served its purpose. I didn't think it was necessarily anything special, but it was a great little cleanser. Mm-hmm. The rose was interesting, but it, I I thought it was too sweet. Oh, was right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like it was kind of. Yeah, it was not like the coolness was like cleansing, but it was a little sweet to actually Mm -hmm. like feel refreshing, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay. So heads up to the pastry department. I'll let him know. Should I send him an email or? I got it. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And then the main courses. Oh, well, actually, I also, when I came in for dinner with my family, um, I had the carpaccio. Oh, right. As an appetizer. So the carpaccio was actually, we had had a, you and I had a long discussion about it. And then on our Instagram feed, um, some friends and listeners wrote in some ideas because we were having, I was having trouble. Uh, like I had this idea for a dish that was right, right. Russell Sprout hash um, with duck confit and a poached egg. And yeah. applesauce and probably some other stuff. I can't remember. Um, but I I couldn't I couldn't quite sort out that dish uh it satisfactorily um before my class and services started. And so and, and even though we had lots of good ideas from people on Instagram, I ended up just wholesale switching it out for a beef carpaccio, just something that I knew how to make, knew would please a certain crowd of people and we could execute it easily so yeah totally and it was like yeah that that's exactly what it was like it was a pretty normal beef carpaccio it was quite good um it was seasoned pretty well um it was a little bit stuck to the plate Mm -hmm. um just a heads up what do you do about Uh, that but yeah what's that what do you do about that uh i don't know i haven't had to solve that problem for quite a while I mean, like, I think in most places where we were doing carpaccio, like, we would definitely, like, there were a couple places I worked where we plated it to order. So mm-hmm. that's one way to fix that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not necessarily feasible for most places. Right. Um, and what's kind of nice about carpaccio is that, like, you can, you know, like, you can pre-plate it and have it on the salad station and then someone has to, just has to pull it out and unwrap it and it's, like, pretty much ready to go except for the garnishes. Mm. Um, so like that's sort of the benefit of having it on the menu yeah. is that it's a fairly simple dish that you can plate ahead and put out quickly, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I think potentially, um, if you, cause you're putting some oil on top of the carpaccio anyways, maybe if you took a little bit of that oil and just like used a, a paper towel or something to rub a little bit of that oil on the mm-hmm. plate, like you wouldn't want to have it, um, like showing outside of where the carpaccio is like right. it would, yeah you know mess up the look of it yeah. but but i think that if you were careful um to get it only on the plates uh only on the por- parts of the plate where you're actually going to be putting the meat down that might help mm-hmm. okay um that was one thought that i had um but yeah it was good that has that dish has <laughs> there's a shale i'm kind of like in a way naturally averse to like new things and change and and basically as far as food goes like aren't we all modernist stuff but i'm really like kind of like our rationale conversation like 
intentionally trying to learn more about it and do some of it. So on that Carpaccio dish, one thing that I heard about ages ago and I was like, that's dumb. That's so dumb. Um, uh-huh. Leak ash, like leak green, in, in, oh, incinerated yeah. leak green. Um, the Oh, is that on, what was on the outside of the yeah. beef? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really like it. Like it. Yeah. That worked really well. Um, yeah. It, it presents, it, it just makes the, the, the contrast between the sear, the seared exterior and, and the red in, raw interior so striking. And the, maybe the flavor doesn't come through loud and clear in that particular application, but like the ash, when, when you're able to have it um, in proper quantities and proportion, it actually tastes really good um yeah with 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 red meat um yeah so yeah like it gives it a little extra grilled flavor yeah yeah yeah, yeah. without having to overly grill it you know yeah and it really like when you're making it like it really does i mean it's you're burning it so it makes sense but like it it, yeah it's nice smoky aroma and yeah yeah i was wondering about that actually i was like oh wow like they either got like a really good sear on the outside of this or like i wasn't quite sure what was happening there Mm -hmm. a lot of people like will roll their piece of beef and like black pepper too or things like that but i find things like that can be really overpowering Mm -hmm. so or yeah like coffee rubs and stuff yeah and then we're on to the main courses (laughs) we're gonna blast through the mains oh okay no worries it's gonna be so easy um so the first dish was the salmon coho salmon Mm -hmm. um what else is on that dish guyland uh, Gailan, scallion, maple, miso glaze, and kabocha squash. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, I'm still not not in love with kabocha squash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> I loved every second of tasting the kabocha squash that was on that dish. It was great. It's the best. Is it the best squash? Um, the salmon, I thought, was maybe a little over. It was. I, I but, cut. So, like, I didn't, yeah. just to clarify... Like I didn't personally cook all of the food that you ate, but I did. Of I did for the tasting menu. I did. I did plate it all, I think. Right. If I remember right. And yeah, when I, I carve, I when I sliced that um, that piece of fish, I was like, oh, piece of yeah, salmon. This is, like, yeah. Shale's gonna. He's gonna notice this. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but but like you know, like I I fully understand that. Also, like it it did occur to me that potentially, um, you know, like part of the mandate is to cook the salmon to a specific temperature. I wasn't really sure or not or what, but. Um, another one, one interesting, like just menu execution problem that I've been running with is like my, our intention is to serve medium rare salmon, like to serve salmon, like the finishing okay, yeah. temperature is supposed to be one thirty ish Fahrenheit. And so like it's pan seared and like, I, I train the students to pull it from the pan at 120 and let it carry over to 130 so it's medium rare. We want to see a gradient of doneness in it. Gotcha. Now, most of the like we have there's a lot of like you know, like obviously preheated plates and heat lamps after things are plated and most of our proteins are really stable in terms of their finishing temp in those situations. Like the like the bison ribeye right. like if we pull it at 120, it carries over to 130, 135, and it's medium rare until it gets to the table. But I'm starting totally. to, I think that the, like it doesn't, what I'm saying is it doesn't overcook under the lamp. But I think yeah. that the fish does. I don't know if that oh, even yeah. makes sense, but like. No, it totally I, makes sense. Because I, t- like even that exact piece of fish that you were served, like I tempt it at the pass 
or sorry, like when it, when it uh, was passed from Rotis to the chef station and it, it tempts below 130, and I was like, great. And then by the time it gets on a plate, like I, I sliced it to make your smaller tasting portion. And I was like, yep, yeah. this is not uh, not at the right temp. But. Yeah, like it, salmon or like most fish, like even sitting on a hot plate, mm-hmm. like, you know, like a plate that's like near the temperature, the finishing temperature of the fish, it will like cook through. It doesn't take very long. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like seemed like a really nice quality piece of fish. Um, the scallion little hard to it's a little hard to cut a f- like a full long grilled scallion scallion like that. Mm-hmm. I might I might try to do something about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like like you're kind of trying to cut it with your steak knife and it's kind of like slipping all over the plate. I don't know. Right. Okay. Um, like it looks nice. The presentation looks nice. The glaze on the fish looks really nice. Um, yeah, but it's a little hard to eat that scallion mm-hmm. and not have to eat like a whole half of it all at once. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there are pickled mushrooms on the dish as well. Those were delicious. Mm-hmm. What were they pickled in? Um, soy, brown sugar, ginger, and rice wine vinegar. Oh, that's similar to uh oh, what's that called? I can't remember. The like flavoring component that you put in like a ramen broth. Oh yeah. I can't remember what it's called right now. Tare. Tare. Yeah. Tare. Almost. Yeah. And then I had, <laughs> I think, a whole half of a chicken breast. <clears throat> I was the next dish. No, it wasn't a half. It was Alan, maybe. F- I legitimately haven't eaten half as much as I ate that night in like you. more than a year. It gave me. It was pretty intense. I, I didn't feel bad when i left but man i like i haven't eaten that much food in so long it was like pretty shocking i when we were catering with elm like once in a blue moon we would do a 10 course dinner like but it was Mm -hmm. not it was not normal for us and so it's not it's really something that I've only done probably a dozen times in my life, like, like, like served right. a, a 10 or more course meal. Um, and I, I knew portioning was going to be an issue and I really, I, yeah, I, I was thinking about it, but it's, it's, sh- especially when I think back to some of the meals that I've had at, at starred restaurants and stuff where I'm like, I ate like even more than 10 courses. And I don't remember yeah. getting a plate and being like, you know, thinking that it was ridiculously diminutive or anything like it, like, but it's, it's a real, it's something that you really need to think about. I try the chicken. Yeah, well, and like, I mean, clearly like also your menu is not structured to provide like, you know, a right. 10 or 12 course meal. It's like supposed you to be were three courses, appetizer, main dessert, portioning yeah. things down <laughs> on the fly to make it a reasonable amount of food <laughs> yeah. for me to consume. Yeah. And like, obviously that's pretty tricky. Like, you There's know. a lot of ring cutters going flying around. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah, the chicken was was pretty big. I think I got like a whole half a breast <laughs> and it was like stuffed with a lot of sausage, yeah. which was delicious by the way. <laughs> I mean, no surprise there, obviously. <laughs> the sausage is going to be good. Great. <laughs> Alan, you're a sausage master. Okay. What did you think of that dish really? Of the chicken dish? Yeah. Okay. So that was that was a dish that when we talked about the menu initially, I didn't really have fleshed out at all. I was like, I want to put right. calabrese sausage in a chicken breast, and then maybe there'll be potatoes there, and maybe there'll be 
peppers and zucchini and I don't know what the sauce is. And that's as far as I had taken it when we first talked about it. Um, Right. And what did you wind up with? Do you want to just give it? Yeah. So the final dish is like basically just leaned into the um, Italian center vibes. And so it's a chicken supreme stuffed with spicy Calabrese sausage. It's served with polenta, uh, sauteed zucchini and yellow pepper. The sauce is a red pepper coulis. And Mm -hmm. it's also garnished with a, uh, a pecorino frico, like crispy pecorino cheese. Yeah. So, okay. What did I think of the dish? Um, like, so my first sort of like, um, worry was that, okay, well, you know, like we're at a school, they have to cook the chicken to a specific temperature. And so the chicken's probably going to wind up being a little bit dry. And I think I made a comment too, when we were talking about it originally, when you, um, when we were, when you presented the menu, um, that I thought it was going to be difficult to cook the sausage, mm-hmm. um, fully and not have the chicken dry out. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't really a problem. Um, the, I mean, the chicken was like fully cooked, mm-hmm. but yeah, like, uh, I guess, you know, probably mostly due to the brining, it was like still pretty juicy mm-hmm. and, um, it was really tasty. Mm-hmm. Um, and the chicken skin was like nicely crispy and rendered and that was all good. And the sausage was delicious. Like I said before, mm-hmm. it was quite spicy and I really liked that. Mm-hmm. Um, thought the sauce was great. Um, the polenta, I was like really excited about like how crispy it was, but then how soft and cheesy it was on the inside. Mm-hmm. And you were still able to like get it um, you know, like on the plate in a pretty perfect little round, mm-hmm. um, and have it be so soft, but then so crispy on like the top and the bottom. That was, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the polenta Awesome. and the Frico. Um, when I first, when I took the first bite of the Frico, it seemed like it was going to be quite thick mm-hmm. or something. Um, and like one of the problems that you can run into with Frico is like, it, it can get overcooked and get like a slightly burnt tasting characteristic Mm -hmm. without it really looking burnt. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think so. Like a kind of, uh, to me, sometimes they remind me of like baked rice cake kind of flavor. Um, I I think I understand what you mean. Do you mean like they're actually bitter burnt or? Yeah. Yeah. Like they're a little bit bitter um, because they're just like overcooked and they're starting to get some like, you know, not like nice cheesy flavors, but some sort of like acrid, like acidic kind of burnt flavors. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was a little bit worried for the Frico when I saw it because it was like, it's, it's fairly thick. And then I was also like, oh, maybe this is going to be like a little bit um, tough, but it wasn't at all. It was like really crispy and like really um, like, broke apart really easily and didn't have any of that kind of like burnt flavor also like looked like maybe it was like cooked over a cylinder or something it was like kind of like cylindrically shaped Is it's that how... like it's taken out of the pan and rested on a dowel kind of like you would a twill oh, okay yeah. yeah yeah i got you yeah um yeah the frico i loved um i think maybe there's a way to like incorporate the frico into the dish a little better so that you're not just like cracking off a piece of it and trying to eat it with your piece of chicken. Like, right, yeah. Like what's an know, idea? Like, uh, I don't know. Like, cause you want it to be like, a, like I like the presentation of it. It's a nice piece. I don't know. Like maybe if you put it on top of the chicken, even then people might smash it and then, right. Yeah. Like, or something like that. I, had, I don't know. I had wondered about, I didn't try it. It was just a fleeting thought, but, um, 
You know, sometimes like if you make a grilled cheese sandwich, you can put some grated cheese in the pan. And <laughs> Actually, that's a really interesting idea. Like if you made the frico to order and then you had the chicken breast, you could just like put the chicken breast on the frico well, and pick it up. And I was thinking with the polenta, but oh. but that oh, would be oh, fun to yeah, try too. Yeah. But like, yeah, if you sear yeah. the polenta in in grated cheese in a pan so that the top is like this kind of wild, crispy cheese. It's just like a crazy, yeah, but... Cheese crown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. Uh, yeah. Um, better than any idea I had. <laughs> uh, the the veggies on this dish felt like a little bit of a <laughs> side project yeah. or something. Like, you know, maybe not fully integrated. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the best way to get around that is necessarily. Mm-hmm. That was the, um, in our first conversation, I I was really keen to the kabocha squash on the salmon dish for it to be Parisienne. Right. And I ended up abandoning that idea for a couple of reasons, but then I, I, I stuck that idea onto the zucchini on this dish. So I think you were served Parisian right. zucchini. Um, yeah. And they're, and they're actually kind of like how I described how I would do the kabocha squash is yeah, like with the skin, you know, like half a Parisienne with one side, like is, is like the flesh and, and like, it's like a half sphere and the, yeah. and the flat, the flat half is like the green skin. I like that presentation. I was like, oh, that's very reminiscent of a shale idea. Well, you know what? I I think that probably the f- certainly the first time I saw Parisian vegetables in a restaurant was at the Blue Pear. And it was oh. and it was zucchini on a lamb plate with um Okay. I think there was pomegranate on it as well. Um Oh, that sounds right. And so I don't know if you had a hand in that, but that's yeah, Parisienne zucchini that is forever yeah. uh, in my mind as a something I saw at the Blue Pier. Yeah, totally. Um, I definitely was I that that lamb dish is really ringing a bell for me, mm-hmm. and did it probably had pomegranate pips on it as well? That dish, I'm pretty sure. Like just pips? No, like pomegranate molasses as a sauce or something, and also pomegranate pips. Oh yeah, like it definitely had like fresh yeah pomegranate like seeds like yeah yeah, yeah. right. Um, yeah, not quite sure how to incorporate the veg in like a more holistic way on that plate. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe like at its heart, that dish is, I can't remember if this is how we described it before, but it's sausage and peppers. That's what that dish is. It's like calib, like spicy Italian sausage and peppers. Cause you have garlic sauteed yellow bell peppers and a red pepper. Oh, I cracked it, Alan. Just make it a sandwich. (laughs) Put it on a panino. (laughs) There you go. Exactly. Um, (laughs) <laughs> so yeah to me to me zucchini plays into that really well like as a flavor and con- conceptually like southern italian kind of stuff but um mm-hmm. yeah like even the way that plate is put together it's like meat starch veg here's a circle of starch here's a circle of veg here's a- yeah yeah it's like a very traditional type of plating and i think that was what you know like the, i think that's what made the veg feel like kind of like a side player to me mm-hmm. and not necessarily like cohesive mm-hmm. with the rest of the dish. I don't, yeah, I think maybe, <laughs> I don't know if this helps make it more cohesive, but the other zucchini preparation I wanted to try, but haven't gotten around to yet is like slicing, like getting baby well as small a zucchini as we can find and slicing them on a mandolin mm-hmm. lengthwise so that they're like right. so you get ribbons yeah so and then it's almost <laughs> in my mind it's funny this is kind of what was going on in my head before <laughs> oh, before <right>. when, <laughs> yeah, yeah in in my mind it's like reminiscent of noodles <laughs> just <laughs> this is corny but yeah tie, tie like 
it doesn't necessarily make it any more cohesive, especially if it's like served with fried polenta. But um, right. that was another preparation I wanted to try is like these zucchini noodles. Yeah, like if you had a little zucchini salad or something, you put that on top and there was a warm component and a cold component or something like mm-hmm. that, like it might make it seem like more of a feature in the dish mm-hmm. and less like a side vegetable or something. Right, yeah. But, yeah. Also probably more fun to eat than the Parisian. Yeah, I mean like I like the Parisian too, but you know, if you had both or something, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, that was the chicken. Really tasty. Um, didn't feel dry or overcooked. I was surprised. That was great. Excellent. Um, next up, pork tenderloin. So what was the original incarnation of this dish? Did we talk about this dish? We did. It's quite similar. We had talked about uh, pan-roasted pork tenderloin with potato roasty, braised red cabbage, and I believe kohlrabi puree. Okay, yeah. So we ended up with, uh, it's still pan-roasted pork tenderloin, but it's it's wrapped in speck now. So it's like, it's wrapped in right. bas- basically s- smoked prosciutto, just mm-hmm. as a, just had to cram another technique onto a plate for the students. Totally. So this pork tenderloin was just brushed with mustard and then, yeah, rolled around with with thinly sliced peck. Um, Potato roasty stayed the same. Braised red cabbage stayed the same. The kohlrabi puree became an applesauce. Um, And yeah, it's... Oh yeah, and we have the crispy apple skins from from making the applesauce. And... Brussels sprout and leaves. some big pot blanched Brussels sprout leaves. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this dish was great. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, some, I think more than one person had it when I ate there with my family mm-hmm. and they really loved it too. My mom had it. I think she really liked it. Um, I mean, not everybody knows this Alan, but you're kind of at the top of the cabbage <laughs> game in Edmonton. <laughs> And this cabbage was a good representation of why, why that idea is why people are saying that. You mean, yeah, yeah. why, why that, why, why that meme is out there. <laughs> um, you know, can I tell you about braised red cabbage shell? Sure, yeah, please. Um, oh, this is another one. Okay, so like, there's obviously it's it's a very it's like one of the most traditional and classic German vegetable preparations. But the recipes are always like you you braise it for they say braise it until it's tender, you know, two hours or something. And even I talked about like the my some of the like eyebrow raising things in the Eleven Madison Park cookbook, like with the, right. the amount of nitrite in the liver mousse. And one of them is like his Daniel Hume's uh, red cabbage braised red cabbage recipe is it it's it reads just like a traditional one. It's like yeah, you braise it for an hour or whatever. But you look at the pictures and it's so vibrantly purple, it just seems impossible right. that that's how it's actually prepared. And so right because when you actually braise cabbage in a reasonable amount of liquid for that period of time, it just turns gray. Yeah, like a really really drab kind of burgundy yeah. color. Um, and so like ours is generally when it's made properly um like very vibrant purple and it's because it, like it 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 only takes when it's sliced thin like that it only takes 10 minutes to tenderize or something like you're talking about shaved cabbage um right so the quick cooking and then also balancing like you want the liquid while it's cooking to basically reduce as much as possible like to reduce it to a glaze before the cabbage overcooks and the and the vibrancy is lost totally so it's actually a 
kind of a tricky thing. Like it, it's 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 very simple, but it's kind of tricky to to execute and have the the tenderness, the flavor, and the that vibrancy and the color. The and, vibrancy like yeah. just fades so quickly. Yeah. Well, it looks great. We can post a picture on our Instagram. Um. Yeah, and the Brussels sprout leaves were delicious. They were beautifully seasoned, and they were like perfect texture. Um, the pork tenderloin itself, uh, the the like crispiness on the outside was awesome. The flavor of the pork tenderloin was great. Um, like the the um brine um flavor in it was like um not overpowering. Like um but uh you know made it taste really well seasoned i will say that it was a little hammy yeah i'm wondering if it's if it's staying in the brine a bit too long like it yeah potentially the texture right or yeah yeah, yeah. exactly like it's a bit firm the texture of the actual tenderloin itself was yeah like a little too firm yeah and i think that's from curing so yeah. maybe a little less time in the brine yeah totally um, cause it like, what's kind of nice, like it's nice to have like that, that seasoned flavor go through the whole piece of meat, but what's kind of nice about, you know, like a pork tenderloin is like, since it's a, since it's a tender cut, it's nice to have it, you know, feel a little more like juicy mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. And it was like a little, yeah, firm. Yeah. Um, love the applesauce. The only other critique that I have, the actually, so when I saw the apple skin chips on there, I was like, hmm, that's going to be hard to execute and make them like crispy and not chewy and not burnt or something like that. But actually, like, um, the texture of them was really good. They were quite crispy and, um, and like, uh, you know, like not overcooked or anything, Mm -hmm. but they definitely had a little bit of like the flavor of, fryer oil that mostly isn't being used to fry apple skins in oh is that right okay so i don't know i would potentially maybe use a different like just not fry them in the fryer or something Mm -hmm. like that fry them in a different completely separate oil or something like that i'm I'm not sure what would be the best thing to use but unless something happened that i didn't see they're, they're usually cooked in their own, like in a, not in the deep fryer, but in, in a pot on the stove with fresh canola oil. But Oh, really? Yeah, hmm. but the, they are they are kind of double fried, like a French fry. Um, like they're blanched to get, because okay. there's so much residual um, apple flesh on them. On the interior of the right. skins, you have to cook it out at a low temp first. So yeah, I could see how oh, they, yeah, yeah. they yeah, can taste taste oily kind of like taste like the yeah they taste a little oily i wonder like yeah maybe there's just a better way to like get the oil out of them after they're fried like Mm -hmm. i don't know putting them in the dehydrator on paper towel or something like that might might help with that Mm -hmm. um i wonder if you could fry them in lard and then like or in pork fat and then that would be yeah Yeah. just an idea it's on a pork dish so that's right okay and then you gave me a piece of the bison. Oh, and we forgot to talk about the roasty. The roasty was really good, pretty normal, I would yes. say. I wasn't as excited about the roasty as I was about the polenta. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The polenta, I was like really surprised by the texture of and the flavor of the roasty. I was like, yeah, this is this, this is, is good roasty. Yeah. But do you think the way like the way it would be improved would be like increased contrast between crispy exterior? Is it kind of that? I think that would be one thing for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, if you could get the yeah, if you could get the outside a little bit more crispy, or yeah, and then have the inside be yeah, like nice and jammy or hash brownie kind of hash brownie, yeah, yeah. like really soft, mm-hmm. like maybe like if you could somehow get the inside texture to be more like I'm not saying that you should that that like mashing the potatoes would be an option, but like if you could get the inside to be like cooked almost to the point where the potatoes were like going to kind of mash themselves when you ate them, like so the inside texture was very soft and the outside texture was very crispy. Mm-hmm. That would be an interesting thing to play with. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't really have a good suggestion for that. Like potentially also like, like you were saying with the polenta, maybe there's a way to put something else on the outside. That's like really crispy mm-hmm. um, just on the top and bottom that, you know, mm-hmm. that might make the texture a little more interesting. Um, you should ask the students to come up with a really good idea. Yeah. I should do that more often <laughs> generally. <laughs> it's tough though. <laughs> like brainstorming ideas with a whole bunch of people and then sorting through those ideas and doing it in a way where everyone feels heard and feels like they have their input and everyone's excited about the ideas that they get to put forward is, is very it's tricky. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So the bison ribeye, there was no way for you to not give me a whole piece of marrow. So that was pretty <laughs> fun. Yeah. <laughs> like a three inch piece of beef. Yeah. A three inch marrow of bone. Stove, yeah. Stove, um, stove pipe marrow. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I'm in love with bone marrow. So that was great. Um, yeah. The bison ribeye dish. Uh, can you remember if it has changed since the original presented incarnation? I think all of the the kind of menu copy is basically the same. The only thing that changed really is that rutabaga fry bread. I had, right when we talked about it, I had this, we were going to call it rutabaga fry bread, but I had this, um, a recipe we had done at Jack's that was for, it's a South American bread called sopapilla or sopapaya. It's like a quick bread okay. or pan bread that has pumpkin puree in it. And okay. so I was going to use that as our fry bread. But like the whole, what we talked about was that this dish is supposed to be representing like Treaty 6 indigenous influences. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was like, why am I making this? The, the consistency on the, that sopapilla thing was a little bit, was wavering. And so I was like, why don't we just make actual fry bread? And so we took the recipe for Bannock out of Shane Chartrand's book, Tawau. I think we, oh, cool. the, the salt content is bumped up and we just like added shredded rutabaga to it and we fry it yeah that's just like actual fry bread so that's the only thing that changed oh my god alan this i think when we talked about it originally when you were talking about it i'm pretty sure it like brought back a memory of the turnip puff pastry right yeah you mentioned that from four five six yeah and when i when i had this that's exactly what i thought of i was like oh my god (laughs) yeah like I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it definitely invoked that that memory for mm-hmm. me, and mm-hmm. yeah, I loved it. Cool. I was in love with this fry bread. I mean, because you were giving me a small portion, you know, like I think it was tough for the fry bread to, you know, like it was a smaller piece, and so I think it had a little more crispy and a little less fluffy right. than normally would be on the plate, right. and that kind of wound up affecting my experience of eating this dish a little bit because 
the marrow is very fatty mm-hmm. um and uh and then also the fry bread you know had, like the piece that i got was like quite oily because there's just so much more surface area mm-hmm. comparatively and uh so that made the dish eat a little greasy but i don't think that that would be the case with like a full plate of this dish right. you need the you need the um, especially because aspect of the fry bread to right yeah you need the softer inside you need a little bit more of the softer inside to counterbalance that but Mm -hmm. i'm sure that's how it you know on the on the normal dish that's how it winds Mm -hmm. up being um yeah and because there was so much marrow because you can't just give me a third of a marrow bone i basically just took everything from the dish while i was eating it and like stuffed it into the marrow (laughs) bone and then pulled it out when it was covered with marrow and ate it um yeah it was delicious um the bison ribeye is really nice um yeah it's a beautiful piece of meat like nice and lean but super juicy and yeah it was really good the cook was good yeah the cook was great oh wait will you see the picture alan well i'm sure you saw it i carved i didn't cook it but i carved it so i did see that you carved (laughs) it yeah exactly (laughs) um and then what are the greens on this plate so it's served with uh braised leeks and spinach oh and spinach yeah um yeah the leek was great uh the spinach i don't have much of a memory of it honestly it's basically like the the braised leeks are like seared seared in a pan um and then there's some veal jus or sorry veal glass added and the spinach is just kind of chucked in there to wilt and so it doesn't get really get any special treatment it just has some veal glass and salt on it yeah um the veal glass is good i don't know i think that there's potentially an opportunity to do something different with the sauce on this plate Mm -hmm. um I, but, you know, like, I don't know. It's also kind of like, well, you probably have to teach people how to make veal glass is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really well made. And, you know, um, you know, a ton of umami, kind of like we were talking about. The sauce, um, the one thing for that sauce. So the sauce is actually like we were calling it Saskatoon Poivrade. So mm-hmm. like it, it does have veal glass in it, but it's it has Saskatoon's and, and red wine and juniper and stuff like that but it's it's kind of like i like the concept behind it but to be honest about it like it's really hard for the flavor of saskatoon berries to come through in something like a a a veal reduction sauce um yeah like even because they're like whole berries on the plate and like they wind up basically tasting like the jus you know yeah because they have a pretty saskatoons have a pretty subtle flavor yeah so yeah, I think there's like maybe some room to do something a little bit different there. Mm-hmm. Maybe a different Saskatoon component or something. I don't know. Either like I was thinking either I I think the only chance that Saskatoons would have to stand up in in that context would be like an actual like Saskatoon jelly basically or or right. compote or something. But the other thing is um like I think even if we could use a different um a different wild berry that had a lot more acidity to it um mm-hmm. it would have a better chance of of um coming through on that plate yeah what if you this is probably a dumb idea but what if you made a uh, saskatoon like compound butter that was like melting on top of the steak or something like, like that? is it literally just saskatoon smashed into butter or is it like yeah you know, yeah, that's what I have in my head. But you probably would not want to just do that directly. Like you probably want to cook them down mm-hmm. and then try to get like maybe some of the seediness out and then. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. 
and then mix it with butter or something. I don't know. Just a, just a dumb idea. <laughs> don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> um, yeah. Bone marrow. Can't go wrong. <laughs> and then you had dessert. Uh, yeah. But before we get to dessert, uh, when I came in with my family, I had the lamb shank. Oh, right. Yeah. I didn't write down a ton of notes about it. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, like the cook on it was perfect. It was a really beautifully sized portion. Um, what else is on that dish? So I think if I remember right, um, Oh, panisse, right? Yeah. And I hope this was communicated to you. <laughs> you didn't actually get served the panisse. Oh, okay. Okay. That was polenta. Yeah. So it, it okay. was actually just like, we, I was wondering we, about that. <laughs> you're like this panisse is really good. It really reminds me of the polenta I had two nights ago. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, it basically like we, I do a mise en place check on every station half an hour before we open and the panisse on the entremet station just didn't pass. And so we had to sub polenta. That's all. <laughs> I got you. Uh, that was not communicated to oh, me, okay, unfortunately. Sorry. But no worries. Uh, well, I'm kind of sad because that was like the thing that I was the most interested in on the dish, yeah. and and like after having what I thought was panisse, I was like, hmm. <laughs> seems <laughs> it seemed underwhelming. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Um, um, and then you have like skinned cherry tomatoes that are like roasted or something. Yeah, it's like, like that. a worm. It's supposed to be like a worm salad of the cherry tomatoes mm-hmm. with green green pepper and cilantro and cumin, right? Uh, and with yogurt, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and I liked the this actually like there weren't a ton of like fresh herbs on most of the mains, mm-hmm. um, but I liked the fresh herb component on this dish. Mm-hmm. Um, there were also some nasturtium leaves on it potentially should have just been cilantro there was oh, nasturtium, there nasturtium on the on carpaccio something. the, the oh, okay, carpaccio right. yeah, like on right. the menu it just yeah. says it comes no, with a right. herb salad and we just draw stuff like they have a cultivator totally. there and there was nasturtium this week so. um yeah i mean i don't know if you know about me and cilantro but i'm obsessed oh is that right so. no i didn't know that i love yeah. it i had green curry for dinner tonight and i took like a fistful of cilantro and just <laughs> threw it on top <laughs> um and they so the did you like the yogurt element of that um i'm not like super remembering it can you it would like describe the it warm me? uh like and i don't think i took a picture let me see if i took a picture Sorry, like the the tomato and green pepper salad was basically nestled into a little into a swipe of of yogurt yeah i think maybe potentially there wasn't a ton of it mm-hmm. or something so I don't know, maybe, maybe if the idea is that, yeah, maybe there just needs to be a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no mint in that yogurt and no mint jelly. I think, well, actually, I think that in our first conversation, or I think originally there was going to be <laughs> mint on that dish. Um, but then yeah. it, everything ended up skewing towards this other group of flavors. Then I swapped out the, the mint for cilantro, like with the, I'm proud yeah, of you. The, cumin tomato i ended up putting like ancho chilies in the braise for the lamb and might even like we had we just we have so many like stock based and reduction based sauces i was thinking Mm -hmm. right now the lamb is basically just glazed in the thickened um braising liquid um right but i was thinking about maybe just like making an ancho chili adobo kind of uh, sauce to to glaze it in instead just 
Be- yeah, because there's so much stock and reduction. Totally. I know it's culinary school, but there's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like culinary school should also be about like, here's some interesting things that you can do, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. Like, I really loved it, and I haven't had a braised lamb shank in a really long time, and so I was like, oh, man, this is so great. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, having it glazed in the reduced lamb shoe, it, you know, made it, like, very similar to a lot of lamb shanks right. that I've had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then dessert. I mean, I know that doesn't really have much to do with you, but... No, that's from a different class, but... The presentations, the dessert presentations are pretty... I mean, pretty fancy. Yeah, they, the first, I feel like the first time I presented a menu in this class, I was kind of going about business as usual. And then in in terms of the plating and presentation, Mm -hmm. and then I saw what the patisserie class was doing. I was like, oh no, I need to. (laughs) (laughs) I got to bump up my plating game a little bit. Which, yeah, to be honest, like, yeah, I have fine dining experience, but most of what I did for most of the 10 years before I started in this class was casual was cafe was cafes and, and totally catering. Um, and so it was a muscle that I had not had to use in a long time. And, but I've, I've been working on it. I think, I think it shows like, I think, uh, a lot of your plates look really nice. Thank you. Um, not complicated, like, you know, um, not fussy. <laughs> yeah, not too fussy, but still like really well laid out and presented. Like um I'm sure that if you wanted to try to push them in a little bit more of like a structured direction, we could like go through them and come up with some, you know, really interesting ideas um, you know, for ways that you could make them look a little more artfully plated. Mm-hmm. Um and then also I know that most of the mains that you or most of the plates that you sent to me, you were basically making up the plating for on the fly because they're like half of the dish or a third of the dish. Or right. Whatever, yeah. So more, yeah, more or um, less they were miniaturized versions, but yeah, there were, yeah. Right. It didn't always. Like, yeah, it doesn't always work out when you miniaturize the, like the plating that it looks as nice. Like I noticed yeah. like the, the lobster tail that I had, like the plating looked very simple. Um, but like when somebody, when when I went with my family and somebody ordered the actual full lobster tail, you know, like it looks, I don't know, just because you have both lined up in the same direction, it just gives it yeah, a totally. little more like artistic flair, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, like it's not really fair for me to judge the artistic presentation on, on dishes that you had to like downsize on the fly or right. whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you wanted to push in that direction, I'm sure we could like, go through the pictures that I took and be like, Oh, what if this, what if that mm-hmm. would be a fun exercise? Yeah. I've got pictures of all the full size plates too. So. Oh yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. And the desserts were pretty tasty. I think it's really funny though. Um, <laughs> so like Cape gooseberries yeah, or ground cherries or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call them. Mm-hmm. Oh, ground cherries are different, I guess. Right. Ground cherries so, are yeah. like baby tomatillos. Yeah. Oh, are they? I don't know. Um, but, but definitely, yeah. Cape. I I only know those as Cape gooseberries, not and not the same as gooseberries. Yeah, Faisalus, right, yeah, right? Not the same as gooseberries. Faisalus. Faisalus. Yeah. 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 So it's like a little orange kind of berry or a little orange like fruit, and it's wrapped in this like papery outside Jacket. kind of yeah. shell. Mm-hmm. 
and they're very fashionable as dessert garnishes in like the 90s and the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in like 99.99% of presentations, um, you would like take the take the paper shell of the Cape Gooseberry and delicately open it up so that the berry was exposed mm-hmm. and then kind of like um like push the papery part together so it was like sticking up off the berry. Mm-hmm. Um and it's like not really an edible component, but it like kind of gave the plate this like sort of like I don't know, it's like a little fancy little structured piece of garnish. Mm-hmm. Um and like, you know, it's very passe and kind of dumb and i don't really like putting stuff that's not edible on the plate as garnish so Mm -hmm. that kind of sucks about it too Mm -hmm. um but for some reason on both of the desserts that i had they had kit gooseberries but just with the papery part just removed and just a single berry just thrown on the plate when i came in with my family i had the pear mousse Mm -hmm. And there was like just a single lone cape gooseberry sitting in the middle of the plate with no cape, I guess. And then also uh, when I came in the night that um, you did the tasting menu for me, um, I ordered the, what's it called? Pecan Halo? Yeah. Right, yeah. I ordered the Pecan Halo. And yeah, there's just a rando cape gooseberry with no wrapper just like on the plate. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought it was super weird. Not quite sure what's going on there. Maybe they just had a lot of them or Yeah, it went through well we've I think we talked about like um perfunctory garnishes like uh-huh. like parsley on savory dishes and mint on sweet dishes and microgreens and yeah, definitely Cape gooseberries. Yeah. Um they just yeah, they each of those have this kind of moment or this era where there is something irresistible about them to chefs and they end, they find their way onto plates where maybe they're not fully integrated into the concept. Is that, that's what you mean, right? Well, yeah. And like, yeah, like they're in no way integrated on either of these plates. And also they don't really look all that nice. Like, Mm. I guess they have a nice color, but without their kind of like papery twirly kind of fancy Oh, so now you're upset that element. they don't put the paper on the plate. A moment ago, you were saying it well, was ridiculous to put them on the plate. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just okay. Kidding. So <laughs> I I don't think I, I'm personally not really into non-edible garnishes, but I think that the reason why Cape Gooseberries became so popular is because of that look. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right. It's a really, it's a kind and of. And once you remove that look from them, I feel like. They're not really, they don't really look all that attractive. Um, I mean, I think that they do have a nice flavor, mm-hmm. but if you want to have that flavor in your dish, then, you know, like it should be a component of the dish, not just a random piece of fruit. Like, why didn't they just put an apple on the plate? What's the difference? Is the question, what's the difference between an apple and a Cape Gooseberry? I'm just kidding. Um... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean within the context of the dish, I think it's a personal like a perfectly reasonable thing to ask. Mm-hmm. Like I I would have been just as surprised to see a whole unpeeled <laughs> apple on the plate. What's it supposed to go with? 
anyway, whatever. That's my rant about the gooseberries that were on the plate. Unbelievable. I'm... Um, but the uh, pecan halo was actually quite good. It was like a really nice, uh, well put together like pecan pie, basically. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like stood on its own. It's kind of like deconstructed. Mm-hmm. The pie crust is like this fancy, like um, vertically, like it's basically a ha- halo, like but but stacked vertically, and then it's half filled with like a piece of really tasty pecan pie. Mm-hmm. And then there's a semifredo. Or yeah, a semifredo. Can't remember what the flavor of the semifredo was, but that was quite good too. And then there's like a gel on this plate. I'm not sure what that was supposed to be flavored like. It was pretty subtle. Thought maybe lemon at first, but then I kept tasting it after I had tasted the other things and I couldn't quite figure it out. Do you remember what it is? Um, I have definitely eaten that plate. I would have to It looks like kind of like a it's a, like a yellow fluid gel kind mm-hmm. of. I'm not quite sure. And then it also comes with like a brulee, like a pumpkin brulee. So it's sort of like a pumpkin custard that's like set out on the plate and then the top of it is bruleed with sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, I also didn't really necessarily feel like that was a very cohesive part of the dish. Um, not that it wasn't tasty, but I just like pumpkin, I guess pumpkin and pecan pie kind of go together. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I didn't think it really needed to be there. It's like probably a bigger piece of pecan pie in the halo and like the semifredo and that fluid gel. And there's like candied pistachios on the dish. Those are really nice. Oh, is there? Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's some like really nice flower petals and things like that. But yeah, this gooseberry's got to go. <laughs> Somebody should. Okay. Somebody's got to go into the fridge and just take all those gooseberries and chuck them in the trash. Alan, if you don't do it, I'm coming and I'm going to come by and do it. And then I had the pear mousse. Have you had that? Caram- I've not tasted. Pear- I've seen caramel. that plate. I haven't actually eaten it. It's fascinating. Yeah. Um. So there's like some kind of like candied, like a brittle tweedle or something. Mm-hmm. That was really good. I'm not sure if it was peanut. Maybe I can't remember. Um. And then I think there's like a pear compote. Um. That was good. And then there's like a financier or something. Okay. Is that what's on that plate? Um. That was also quite good. And then the pear. There's like, so there's a, it's a pear caramel, pear caramel mousse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it's mm-hmm. called. Um, and the, the like mousse, the pear mousse is inside like a chocolate, enclo- a white chocolate enclosure that's shaped like an actual pear. Right, yeah. Yeah. I, do you know if they're making those or just ordering them or? I, I would be shocked if they weren't making them, but I guess I, I guess I don't know. It was pretty well constructed, like, and it looked like you, you couldn't really see any seams on it yeah. or anything. Like, it looked pretty perfect. And it's like, kind of spray painted to have the modeled to look like a player. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looked, sorry, to look like a. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. It has like a modeled surface of a yeah. pear, and it's got like a little pear stem that's like a little piece of teardrop piece of teardrop shaped piece of chocolate. Yeah. yeah, looks just like a pear on the plate, and then you fork into it and it's like fairly like fairly thin Mm -hmm. um but quite but solid enough to like hold its shape Mm -hmm. and then it's yeah filled with um pear mousse and then on the inside of the pear mousse there's like a pear caramel the pear caramel was a little too hard okay um i'm not sure if it was just because it was cooked too hard and then you know um 
and then put in before they really understood what the cold texture of it would be. Mm. Um, but the pear caramel on the inside was probably hard when it should have been like quite soft. Uh, like probably if I was making that dish, I would want the inside, the caramel that's inside to be maybe not runny, but almost like flowy mm-hmm. when you cut it open. But it was actually like almost like hard candy. Oh, is right. Yeah. Uh, which was a little sad. Um, but the pear mousse was quite good. Um, it's kind of like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of fruit mousses have a little bit of like, they're a little too gelatinous sometimes. Mm-hmm. This was a little gelatiny. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, it was like a nice mousse, but it had a bit of, you know, that jello texture. Mm-hmm. But yeah, overall, it was a, like a really well constructed dessert. Cool. I was pretty impressed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that was the whole menu. I had never, I haven't eaten that much food in like such a long time, like more than a year for sure. Probably two years it's been since I ate a meal that was. <laughs> and you haven't, was and you haven't eaten big. since probably, right? That's yeah. right. I honestly, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too into the details of it, but like I've been making an effort to lose some weight since I found out about my, uh, my diabetes diabetes diagnosis and like it legitimately like that meal like eating out those two meals like twice in one week it like legitimately put a dent in my like uh in the the progress that you had made pace at which i had been losing weight for sure i I felt like i almost lost a week so it was pretty funny hashtag worth it i hope <laughs> yeah like 100 percent. like I, I i don't know like part of part like also a part of my philosophy about my weight loss journey is that i'm not really going to allow it to you know affect my ability to you know eat things that i want to eat if i want to eat them and that you know like i just have to like i mean they're obviously like i'm not going to sit down and eat a pillowcase full of candy mm. like <laughs> that that that's like a part of the discipline i guess but like i still want to be able to have like really awesome memorable food experiences and so it totally fits into the philosophy that i have around you know how i have been changing my eating habits to um, be able to have like you know a real cheat if i want to go out and have like you know a really amazing fancy meal or like right. a big multi-course meal or have one of my friends serve me some food that they're really excited about and that kind of thing. I don't, I don't want to lose all those great food experiences that, you know, like are so much a part of like, you know, my passion for food and, you know, the things that we talk about on the podcast right. and stuff like that. I don't want to, you know, just like cut all that stuff off. And so mm-hmm. it was like a really nice treat to be able to go out for a super comprehensive <laughs> and, uh, and a really fun and creative meal. Cool. So that was, uh, that was great, Alan. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Yeah. So have you felt like, you know, like, are you pretty happy overall with how things have turned out? Seems like a lot of the ideas that you had, like pretty much made it from concept to plate. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Like in terms, like we talked about it enough in the first conversation, like a lot of that menu is is the instructional side of this, you know, like building in techniques and making sure things are executable and achievable for students. And, um, but all, all that aside, just in terms of, yeah, like a menu and the flavors and the consistency of execution. Um, I'm, I'm 
quite happy with it. There's always, always ways to improve it and tweak it. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's still not, uh, it's certainly not set in stone even now. Like even like we mentioned over the course of this conversation, little things that aren't coming out quite as consistently as they could and ways to improve it. And to me, that's the, that's the journey shale. That's the, (laughs) um, (laughs) it is, it is really nice though. Like when you, it it never really ends, but usually you get to some point with the dish where you, you feel like, okay, I can, I can make a spec sheet for this and file it away. And I would feel, I would be confident like pulling it out at a moment's notice for an event or a special. And, um, so I, I think mm-hmm. that a hand, honestly, a handful of the dishes on this menu are at that point now. Um, but I, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely continue to tweak certainly for the rest of this term, uh, and probably, totally. probably into the next. And do you know for how many terms you're going to be running evening dining or, uh, n- not necessarily. No. Um, I think that like two for sure, like this one and next for sure, but then yeah. you're not really sure after that or typically I don't, it's not, not, not even really my decision to make, but like, I think typically no, instructors course. stay with a class for, um, two or three years. Okay. Um, yeah. so I would, yeah, potentially have a whole, a whole one or two more academic years to run, to, to do this dinner service. Right. And so do you think, um, like in your head, or do you know if maybe this is the mandate, like, will the menu have to like be completely overhauled? If you, if you're still, uh, teaching evening dining next year, will the menu have to be completely overhauled or will you be able to like continue to sort of like iterate with the menu that you have and maybe tweak the dishes and take off a couple and bring on a couple? Or do you know if they're going to want to completely overhaul the menu? Like, is that a part of the learning experience for the students is like cooking a brand new menu or? No, not, not really because it's, it's always new students, right? Like it, <clears throat> right. Um, like even over the course of this one term, I'm, I'm, there's three different groups of students cooking the menu. And so I'm I'm keen to change the menu up just because I I learn a lot about well I just I learn a lot by by changing things um, and it keeps it interesting mm-hmm. for me and it keeps it um, yeah obviously like fresh and contemporary um, but on, on the other hand I, what I've really noticed this term is like it's it's really important to have systems in place like clear systems and expectations and so if you're changing menus on the fly and you all of a sudden don't have the proper prep list recipes, spec sheets and expectations, it's, it's hard. It's, it's harder for everyone, right. To, to stay on the same page and execute. Mm-hmm. So I think certainly going to next term, I'm going to keep this menu largely the same, but uh, keep trying to improve it. Um, and then come next fall, um, that's that's yeah no big changes would happen until a year from now basically um right and i have a little bit of time to think about those changes and to put the proper systems in place to make sure they are executable and that they roll out in the right way and that it's fair to the students they have the materials that they need to be able to succeed yeah yeah Yeah, cool it's pretty fascinating yeah it's fun (laughs) were you frightened at the beginning of the semester that things weren't going to go well or that it would be... um well i had the only unknown for me because i had taught the class last term 
but we were in some pretty heavy COVID stuff. And so there were right. at least two periods of last term that the dining room wasn't even open and the class still went on and we right. still cooked and stuff, but there weren't, was it your menu or were you, it was, yeah. It, um, oh, okay. so like I had, I felt like I had to write my own menu just so that I was credible and convincing as an instructor. Like if I, if it had been someone else's right. menu, I like the, the menu they had been running before was great and I had eaten a lot of it and really liked it, but, um, felt like to, to properly instruct and inspire, I guess to use, <laughs> I don't know if I want to use that. Yeah. Um, well, and also just so that like, you know, it's, it's one thing to like cook someone else's menu with someone else's systems, but it's a completely different thing to be like, you know, familiar with the food that you want to cook on the level that like you have conceptualized it. Right. Yeah, like totally. And so it's like a different ball game. Kind yeah. Of. And like to be able to bring in, to write a menu and then to be able to just kind of import my own, like from my own catalog of recipes. And I, if, if I wrote, if I'm bringing in the recipe, then I know it inside out and backwards, it can help troubleshoot it or explain it yeah, better. Exactly. But if it's someone else's recipe, even if I have more experience and uh, such than the students, like I still might not be able to articulate it as well as if it were my own recipe from the start. That was my right. thinking. Yeah, anyways. exactly. Like if it's somebody else's recipe, then potentially you don't, completely understand the intention for some of the components or something like right yeah you know like even if you understand how they like the level at which they were being executed previously you know in the mind of the chef who designed them originally maybe they hadn't quite gotten to the point where that chef wanted them to be mm -hmm. or something and so you know if you're just taking over somebody else's dishes from having eaten them and sort of, you know, and obviously you have your own level of experience about how components should be or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if you didn't, you know, if they're not your ideas, then, you know, maybe you don't exactly know how to improve on them to get them to the point where, you know, they would be great in the way that the person who thought them mm -hmm. up might, mm -hmm. you know, might be connected to them or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, go, going into this term, the only unknown, like we were well, sorry, at the beginning of this term, like we were also in a sticky COVID situation, but that went away or receded quite a bit when the government um, set up the restriction exemption program in, mm -hmm. in at the end of September, I think, or the beginning of October. Yeah. And, um, and we saw reservations go on an uptick very abruptly. And so the only unknown for me was like, like I understood the kitchen and I understood the instructional aspect of the position. It was just like, well, how busy are we going to get? And like how, right. how, yeah, I, I hadn't seen the, I hadn't been able to cook really busy services with the students last term, really, except for a couple of uh, special dinners and stuff. But Right. So far so good though on the busy nights. Yeah, they've done great. Awesome. Yeah. Um... Thanks for listening to Food Court, a podcast recorded in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Food Court is hosted by Alan Sudeby and Shale McDonald. Theme music by Ryan and Shale McDonald. 
Make sure to subscribe to Food Court in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or in your favorite podcast player. We love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at feedback at foodcourt.fm or find us on Instagram at foodcourtpodcast. If you want to spread the word, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with a fresh new episode. Thanks for listening.